Welcome to the Tax Factor, the top 20 business and investment podcast with all the latest tax updates for you and your business. This week with Matt Crawford and Rob Goodley. I'm Matt Crawford. And I'm Rob Goodley. And welcome to the Tax Factor, the top 20 business and investment podcast, which brings you all the latest that's happening in the world of tax. This week, I'm joined by my colleague, Rob Goodley who'll be talking about the upcoming changes to tax-approved share schemes and giving us the latest on a real tax factor favourite, yet another VAT case on foodstuffs. This time, we're not talking about the difference between a poppadom and a crisp, but focusing on something different for those listeners with a sweeter tooth, the finer points which allow the taxman to differentiate between a flapjack and a cake. But before we get into that, Rob, I understand you've been taking a look at the Prime Minister's tax affairs. I have, Matt, yeah. Sort of snuck out on Friday of last week. A schedule of taxable sources and for income and gains for the PM was posted online. So not a redacted version of his tax return, which we've seen other politicians produce in the past, such as Nicola Sturgeon. But yes, a, a sort of a schedule in the form of a letter from his advisors setting out his income and gains for the last tax year. I would say for me, it's more interesting for what it doesn't say than what it does. So we know from the schedule that the PM had income of around £430,000 in that year and, and realised capital gains of around £1.8 Other than that, there's not really much to say. Those were within the scope of UK tax. He suffered some US tax on his investment portfolio, and there's likely to be some exotic investments in there as the schedule states that some of the US taxes he suffered couldn't be credited against his UK tax liability. There's also a statement there that he's never claimed the remittance basis of taxation, which we know his wife has in the past because there was a bit of a furore about that about a year ago now. Other than that, really, it doesn't tell us that much. And, you know, it's sort of makes me think really what sort of purpose is this exercise serving you know I, th- I think to my mind this is about trust in politics primarily you know are the people who set the rules do they abide by the rules but this doesn't really tell us anything about that we don't know what reliefs he might have accessed in that year we don't know if he's under investigation for previous years perhaps he's been involved in you know aggressive avoidance schemes we don't really know any of that so i don't really know what this tells us about kind of trust in politics. And I guess for me, the kind of a secondary thing might be, does it start a debate about how the tax system works, which I think is always healthy in society, other than there being a bit of discourse this week about whether the rate of capital gains tax is correct. This doesn't really serve that purpose either. So I don't know what your reflections are, Matt, but I just sort of think, you know, what what does this exercise actually do? I entirely agree. I think from a political perspective, I personally, I'm not particularly enamoured with this idea of pressuring politicians into providing personal data about their own financial affairs. I think often the media get the story wrong on some of these issues. Comments are picked up in the press that aren't necessarily particularly accurate. We've talked about before Rishi Sunak's wife, because she previously she filed her tax return on the remittance basis as a non-domiciled individual. And there were so many comments across both social media and the mainstream media around residence and domicile and getting things like those concepts mixed up. So I don't actually think that providing this information really does very much good. And I completely agree with you that what's in there is really completely vanilla. There's nothing that tells us anything interesting about the Prime Minister's tax affairs, particularly. There's some stuff in there, a little bit in there about the fact that he has an investment portfolio in the US, which is declared on the register of members' interests at the House of Commons. So we kind of knew about that already. But the only thing that that tells us is there might be some slightly exotic things going on in there, because it looks like some of those things are subject to tax 
either income tax or some form of capital taxation in the US. And that's not creditable in the UK, which is slightly, slightly unusual. So it's obviously treated in the UK as something slightly different. So there might be something interest, interesting in there, but we can only really speculate. The one thing I did see in there that interested me from uh, as a, an employment tax specialist, there was a point raised that the income that Mr. Sunak receives from his employment, i.e. his time as chancellor and his time as prime minister in that tax year, it included an amount in relation to the benefit in kind of the use of 11 and 10 Downing Street. Now, I don't quite understand what that sum is. It's been a long-standing principle that if accommodation is customary, i.e. it's provided as part of your job, so if you are a school caretaker, for example, or the Prime Minister or the Chancellor, where it's very much customary to be provided with some accommodation, that there's no benefit in kind associated with that. The number that's there suggests that they're not treating it as a traditional accommodation benefit in kind because the number would be astronomical for such a property in London. I'm not sure quite what it is. It references expenses in relation to his accommodation. So perhaps it's some form of use of asset charge for some kind of furniture. Really not sure what, what that is. But again, you know, it poses more questions than, than it answers. I promised at the start of the podcast that Rob has been looking at another VAT case this week on foodstuffs. This time it's one involving flapjack and protein bars, Rob. That's right, Matt. So it, it will surprise you to learn, I'm sure, that I had to Google this product because uh, I'm not at the gym seven hours a day using this product to, uh, to get fit. But yeah, the case concerned a product called Dual Fuel. So this is for gym users. And effectively, the word dual is because there is a food product for you to eat before you exercise, which is high in carbohydrate, and one afterwards, which is high in protein. So the one before comes in the form of a flapjack and the one after is sort of a cake or a brownie. And the case was all around whether that product was zero rated for VAT or standard rated. I guess step back slightly, if you're selling a product and it's zero rated, that's great. Your customer doesn't pay VAT when it buys your product, but you get to reclaim VAT on any expenses you incur. On the other hand, if your product is standard rated, if you're selling it for £1.20, 20p of that goes to the exchequer and you only get £1 of that as a business. So it's super important. And here, the business argued that their product was zero rated and HMRC was arguing that it was standard rated. VAT law is incredible, I think, as a tax person, because it's just very real, I think, when you read the legislation. Effectively, here, the case came down to whether this was a cake or whether it was some form of wider confectionery. There was lots of discussion. I mean, even the most determined food critic wouldn't spend as much time as they spent in these cases looking at the, the products in the round, I don't think. But there was lots of discussion here around the ingredients, how it's marketed, all that sort of stuff. But effectively, the decision came down to how it's eaten. So the judge was sort of happy, I think, um, that it wasn't a cake. The question was, is it confectionery? And effectively, the judge said, well, look, I think the average person on the street would say it's not confectionery because you don't say I'm getting fit and eating lots of confectionery. But actually, the legislation states that if you're eating a food type, which is sweet and prepared food and normally eaten with the fingers, then it's deemed to be confectionery. So here we have an item which is deemed to be confectionery. It is hence there, therefore standard rated and the taxpayer has lost. Yeah, absolutely. I really do hope we have a few more of these cases to talk about over the coming weeks on the tax factor. Um, they're always particularly amusing. So on to slightly less mouthwatering matters. Rob, I understand that there's been some updated guidance this week on some upcoming changes to the CSOP and EMI regimes. Yes, Matt, that's right. And actually, this dates back to the Liz Trust mini budget, if you like. It went under the radar, understandably, because that was a bit of a big bang budget. But in sort of the small print there, they announced some kind of simplifications to the CSOP and EMI 
rules. So CSOP and EMI are kind of tax-advantaged frameworks for giving ownership stakes to employees. And effectively, the government recognized that when it came to CSOP, actually the limits for how much you could give someone were a bit too low. And there were some technical aspects to the legislation which just weren't very good. And they simplified them at that time. Uh, and similarly with EMI, there were some kind of mechanical things which meant that often people thought they had a qualifying option, but they didn't. And, and it just caused a lot of administrative burden. And the government recognized that actually, let's just simplify it. The, the one change they announced then was delayed in terms of implementation, but is coming in this April, relates to EMI. And that's this, there's this administrative requirement for you to notify the revenue at the moment within 92 days of whenever you grant an option. And basically, the, the changes coming in from April is actually, rather than it being you know 92 days from grant, just once a year, you have to tell the government how many EMI options you've granted and give them details. So that's like a, you know, a really welcome simplification. It will really help us as advisors because the amount of companies that, you know, they're just going about their job, trying to grow their business and they miss this notification deadline, that will just happen much less frequently. So some positive changes. Oh, yeah, fantastic. And it's something I see when I deal with tax investigations quite a lot as well. You know, HMRC do ask questions around these types of awards. And it's the numbers can really be quite shocking when you actually look at it and you see what can happen when an award isn't qualifying when you thought that maybe it was it can be one of the most expensive mistakes to make in share schemes alongside missing a section 431 election being the other classic one that goes wrong from from time to time. Just more generally, when we're talking about employment related securities, it's just really important to get your returns right uh, more generally because HMRC are getting so much more sophisticated with matching up what you're putting on your employment-related securities reporting electronically with what's going on tax returns and what's going through uh, real-time information payroll. So talking of HMRC and forms being filed, another story that I saw this week is the ICAEW wrote a very strongly worded letter to HMRC complaining about the levels of service. There was a number of recommendations given in that letter around simplifying the tax system. But one of the big areas that was picked up in it was that it's still the case that after 10 years of implementation of real-time information reporting for PAYE, the debts that are appearing on people PAYE online accounts and the amounts that are appearing as being filed with HMRC from a gross and net pay perspective are still not matching up for the majority of employers. And it's getting really, really difficult to actually get through to HMRC and deal with this issue. And that's one of the key points that alongside self-assessment that the ICAW make in this letter. And that's a publicly available letter that you can Google and read because it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating insight into some of the things that are going wrong with HMRC. While we're talking about the revenue I also saw this week, there were a couple of quite interesting contrasting cases all around costs at the tribunal. One was a company called Essex Trading. And in that case, it was actually found that because HMRC didn't disclose something that the tribunal had ordered them to disclose, the costs associated with dealing with that lack of disclosure, there was an award of costs to, to Essex Trading, to the taxpayer, because HMRC had acted so unreasonably in the eyes of the tribunal. Equally, there was a another case that went the other way. And that was a strikeout application by a taxpayer. And in that case, it was deemed that it wasn't reasonable to it was well, they were acting extremely unreasonably to apply for a strikeout application. And all of the costs in defending that were awarded to HMRC. So the taxpayer had to meet foot the bill. And actually, it's quite unusual for that to happen in, in either direction. So quite an interesting case there. 
That's about all we've got time for, but I have got just got time to mention that Blick Rothenberg has launched an updated interactive tax planning guide. It's full of tips and actions that all taxpayers should consider in advance of the tax year end, and it covers a range of areas, including income tax, property, tax-efficient investments, pensions, and inheritance tax. It's absolutely free. It's well worth a read. You can find it on the Blick Rothenberg website by clicking the link on our homepage. And if you enjoyed this podcast, which hopefully you did, why not give a listen to our sister podcast, Brave Business, the podcast for entrepreneurs. It's now officially one of the UK's top business podcasts. Hosted by journalist and broadcaster Declan Curry, the series focuses on providing practical guidance, insights, and opinions from our industry experts and guests with real experience helping entrepreneurs make informed decisions. The latest episode is about expanding your business successfully to the US. You were on an episode of that podcast too, weren't you, Rob? I was, yeah, actually. I spoke to one of my clients about the experience of selling his business. So uh, that's on the on the back catalogue and well worth a listen. Uh, thanks very much to Rob for joining me this week. And thanks to you, Matt. Next week, our colleagues Roger Holman and Robert Salter are back looking at the latest tax stories and news. I'm Matt Crawford. Thanks for listening and goodbye. That's the Tax Factor. We'd like to thank you for making us one of the UK's top 20 podcasts. Find all our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and join us again next time on The Tax Factor.